Matthew chapter 5 this morning as we finish up this short four-week series on, on peacemaking. Just a quick review of where we've been. If you've not been with us, uh, just, I believe in some powerful things here in my, in my own life, honestly, um, in terms of what does it mean for us to be peacemakers, to be those who, who approach conflict, which is a a common thing in our world. All of us experience conflict in various ways. But how to approach something as basic as conflict in a biblical, Christ-honoring, God-exalting way. So I hope this has been helpful to you. Again, I want to recommend to you, uh, there's, there's a book over on our $10 bookshelf that's just such a great book, so biblical. It's called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. This is probably in its 6th or 7th edition by now. It's been around a while, but it's just solid uh, biblical stuff on how to approach and resolve conflict. And what basically what Ken Sandy leads us to in the scriptures is it's just a four-step process, kind of four G's, so to speak, of how we walk through biblical conflict resolution. And the first one that we talked about on January the 8th was that the first thing we need to look at in the midst of conflict is how can we, first G is glorify God in the midst of our conflicts. And we said this was the game changer, really. Biblically speaking, if we would just start in this place, because we, we tend to approach conflict with the first question being in our minds, not what is God doing or not what is my responsibility, but the first question that we're asking is, why is that other person such an idiot? And, and you, I'd be the only one, obviously I am from that response, I'm the only one that asks that question in, in the midst of conflict. But I think it's in us as sinners, we are quick to point the finger. We are quick to pass the blame, just like Adam and Eve in the garden when sin first entered into the world. They were not taking responsibility for their own actions. They were looking for someone else to blame. And the same is true for us. And so the first question that we want to ask when conflict emerges, when relationships begin to break down, when somebody rubs us the wrong way, is this. What's God doing here and how can I glorify him in the midst of this conflict and its resolution? And then secondly, the second step is after we have come before God and asked God, how can I glorify you in this conflict? The second step is not to go and look at the other person. The second step is to look at ourselves. And this is where we talked about uh, Jesus in Matthew 7 teaching us to get the log out of our own eye. This uh, is illustration of someone who is seeking to dig a little speck of sawdust out of his brother's eye while he has a giant plank extended from his own. It's a ridiculous uh, hypocritical type picture, and yet so many of us, uh, we've been there. We're quick to correct others. We're quick to magnify the sin of others and to minimize our own sin. And Jesus in Matthew 7 says, first remove the plank, the beam, the log from your own eyes so that you might be able then to remove the speck from your brother or sister's eyes. So don't just use your own sin as an excuse not to help somebody else, but deal with your own sin, confess your own sin, experience and walk through the process of conviction over your own sin so that you might then be able to remove the speck. Because both the beam and the speck can cause 
blind, spiritually speaking. And so looking at ourselves, secondly, and then last week we talked about beginning that process of going to the other person and seeking to gently restore the relationship, to gently bring Correction. And we reminded ourselves that we are talking about doing eye surgery here. And, and if uh, the eye doctor comes at you with a hammer and a chisel, you will never return to that office again. But why then do we come at our brothers and sisters that way? We need to come with gentleness, as, as Galatians 6.1 says, as Jesus demonstrated in Matthew 18.15-20, a spirit of gentleness seeking not to win the argument, but to win the brother or sister. Seeking to win and renew and reconcile the relationship. So with those things being said, let's jump in this morning to Matthew chapter 5. We've been all over the book of Matthew uh, during this series, seeing much of what Jesus directly had to say about these things. And today, Matthew chapter 5, basically there's just a command here. Now that knowing what you know, now that now we're learning to ask the question in the midst of conflict, God, what are you doing? And then secondly, what's my part in this? What, what do I need to take responsibility for? Then thirdly, talking about the process of, of seeking to gently restore that relationship, to gently go after the other person in Christ-like love. Now today there's this simple command in Matthew chapter 5 to go and be reconciled. And I want to emphasize, church... This is a command of Scripture. This is not a suggestion. This is not plan B. This is a command of Scripture to go and be reconciled. And we'll see that as we walk through these verses together today. So here's our key question of the day. How can I demonstrate the forgiveness of God And encourage reasonable solutions to conflict. So how can I demonstrate the forgiveness of God and encourage reasonable solutions to conflict? How can I, what we're asking is, how can I be a peacemaker? So let's look at that this morning. First way to answer that question, verses 21 and 22, we learn that it's a matter of the heart's response. Six times in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, hey, you've heard it said, and he references an Old Testament scripture, and then he says, but I say to you, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Now, I want to emphasize from the very beginning this morning, Jesus was not overturning the Old Testament scriptures by doing that. He was trying to uncover the true intention of the Old Testament scriptures that had been covered over by many generations of traditions, personal preferences, and ways of doing things that had far, long since departed from the intention of the Word of God. So Matthew 5, verse 21, once again this morning, Jesus said, you have heard it said to those of old, long time ago, many generations back in the days of Moses, they heard these words, you shall not murder. Now, where does that come from? Glad you asked. Exodus chapter 20. Well, we call the Ten Commandments. Everybody's heard of the Ten Commandments, right? Commandment number six says what? Let's read it together. 
you shall not murder. Well, that's a good law, right? Amen. Thank you. At least one person thinks it's a good law. The rest of you, you I guess, go kill each other. I don't really know what we mean by that. But you shall not murder is a good and holy law. We need to be reminded that the law of God is good. The law of God is holy. When we walk according to the law of God, it is pleasing to Him. But the issue in the Scriptures is this. We are a people who are utterly incapable of walking according to God's law. That's what it means to be a sinner. It means that I am incapable of fulfilling the law of God on my own. And, and many of us in the say, well, wait a minute. I've never murdered anybody. I've walked according to this law. I've never killed anyone. And yet, look what Jesus says. Verse 22. You've heard it say you shall not murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So we sit here in this room and we say, well, I've never murdered anybody, so I've obeyed this one. I've been a good boy, a nice girl. I've never killed anybody. And Jesus says, but I say to you, anyone who's ever been angry with a brother or sister who's harbored hatred in their heart is kind of the intention of the word there, is liable to judgment under that particular law. I doubt many of us in this room would be able to raise our hand and say, I've never harbored anger in my heart toward another person. If you can say that this day, then you are far beyond your pastor in terms of your own personal righteousness. I think all of us in this room would say, if you've been on this planet long enough, somebody's rubbed you the wrong way in such a way that you have experienced the effects of bitterness harbored anger in your heart and whether you actually took that person's life or not maybe you've even been in a situation where you would say you know i didn't actually do the deed but i think if i had had opportunity and would not have been caught i might have and what jesus is trying to show us here is it's a matter of the heart's response that matters Jesus was uncovering the true intention of the Old Testament laws. The Ten Commandments and all the laws that that flesh those out in the coming chapters of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, what many of us are reading through in our Bible reading right now during these days, and we're really looking forward to getting on to Joshua and Judges. Okay, you're in that place and they're in your Bible reading, but those laws were all meant to not just describe outward actions, not just in this case the, the physical taking of someone else's life, but they were meant to address the heart issue that lies behind the behavior. That's where we miss it so often. We say, well, I've never killed anybody, so I'm good. I never cheated on my husband or wife, so I'm good. We go on and on through these laws, but Jesus is, is drawing out the true intention of the law, the heart of the law, and helping us to see that it's more than just the outward action. There's something more here. Notice what he says, verse 22. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Strong words that Jesus is saying here. But I want to ask you this question this morning. 
So who is it then that judges the one who harbors hatred in his heart? Who is the judge that is able to see into the heart of a man, into the heart of a woman, and see that there is bitterness, hatred, rage, and anger being given safe harbor in that heart? Now, many judges in this world can judge outward behaviors. They can judge a case of murder or of homicide or even of, of manslaughter. They can, they can judge those kinds of cases in terms of outward behaviors. But what kind of judge in this world can see into the heart of a man or a woman to bring similar kinds of judgment? First Samuel chapter 16 gives us the answer. The prophet Samuel is looking for a king for Israel. Saul has, has run away from the Lord, has departed from faithfulness to God. And Samuel is looking for a new king among the sons of Jesse, where God had led him to go. And he sees one of the older sons, and he looked like a perfect candidate for king. But the Lord said, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so the youngest, David, was chosen as king because the Lord was looking for a man after his own heart. That's the way the Bible describes David. Not a perfect man, a man who would later engage in murder and adultery and all these laws that Jesus is Pointing out here in Matthew chapter 5, David broke all of them at some point or another. But he was a man who was running after the heart of God. He was seeking that to be better than his sinful nature had led him to be. The Lord looks on the heart. So who is it then that will bring judgment upon us if we are harboring bitterness and anger in our own hearts? It's the Lord God. Don't miss that, church. Don't miss that. You may never stand in an earthly court of law for that which you harbor against another brother or sister. But one day we will stand before the living God and we will have to give an account for the way that we've lived this life, for the way that we have loved others or not loved others, for the way things that we have harbored against others that we would not let go of. It's a matter of the heart that we're talking about really all through this series. It's been more about what's happening in here than what even what's happening out here. It's about an issue of the heart and how that is played out, worked out in our lives. Secondly, this morning as we think about how do we enter into this, this issue of being a peacemaker, we need to understand that it's very much a matter of horizontal relationships. It's a matter of horizontal relationships. Look at verses 23 and 24. These verses, they remind us of what we looked at a few weeks ago in Jesus' words in Matthew 22. You remember this man came to Jesus. A man wise in the scriptures. A man who knew much about the ways of God. And he asked Jesus a great question. Teacher, what's the most important commandment? What's the greatest most important thing that God has said to us. And Jesus said to him, Matthew twenty two thirty seven, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now, where in the world did Jesus get that from? Just made it up on the spot, right? No, no, he's quoting the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy. He's quoting the book of Deuteronomy and saying, that's the first and greatest commandment. That's the one on which all the rest of the commandments hinge, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. For me, so we go, amen, praise the Lord. That's exactly what I want to do with my life. And then Jesus followed it up right after that and said, and the second is like another. Did the dude ask about the second commandment? No, in fact, I would say he was not at all interested in the second commandment. Second commandment is like it. In the book of Leviticus, Jesus quotes, And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What was he doing? He was making an inextricable connection between our horizontal relationship, our vertical relationship with God, and our horizontal relationships with one another. And what he was saying is, if you're going to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, all that you are devoted to all that he is, if that relationship is going to be right, then these horizontal relationships must be right. If that relationship is going to be characterized by love, then these relationships must be characterized by love. If that relationship is going to be characterized by forgiveness and grace, then these relationships must be characterized by forgiveness and grace. You cannot divide the greatest commandment from the second greatest. They are tied into one another. We are fooling ourselves if we seek to separate them. If we seek to say things like, well, I love the Lord. I belong to Him and I love Him so deeply. But I can't stand that guy over there. What did James say? With the same tongue, we praise our Lord. And then we curse men who are made in God's likeness. My brothers, this should not be. What's his basis? Right here. The basis for what he was teaching in that moment is found right here in Matthew 22. For to praise the Lord with our tongue and then to turn around right after church and curse someone else who's been made in the very likeness of God is the very heart of hypocrisy. And James says, my brothers, this should not be. But what is Jesus teaching us here in verses 23 and 24? Let's look at it again. He gives us, he gives us a scenario. He says, imagine that you're a church and you're offering your gift at the altar. Now, this was a picture of Old Testament worship where they would bring their lambs, their doves, their bulls, their goats. They would bring these and they would actually have animal sacrifices as a part of their temple worship. But he says, imagine that you're there. You've come to bring your gift to God. And in that moment when you're standing in line to bring that little lamb that you've brought to be sacrificed to God as an act of worship and as a, as a cleansing for your sins. Imagine that in that moment you're reminded of someone who has something against you. Look at what he says. So imagine that you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Make the sacrifice and then go deal with the brother, right? That seems right. The first commandment's what? Love God, right? 
So if I'm going to love God first, then I should be able to come and worship Him and deal with this broken relationship after the fact. That makes sense to us. But here Jesus flips it and says, verse 24, If you realize your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother And then come and offer your gift. Now for a moment there, it seems backwards. It seems like he says, go deal with the second commandment and then come back and do the first. He's reminding us once again, these two commandments aren't so separate as we often think. They are so tied together that to break the bonds with our brothers and sisters is to cause a rupture in our relationship with God. You see, broken relationships can certainly hinder true worship. And many of you in this room, myself included, we have experienced what this is. That broken relationships among us can hinder us from worshiping God in spirit and in truth. It can cause us not to be able to bring that gift. Because we're giving safe harbor to sin in our hearts. So what's the solution? It's a lot simpler than you probably imagined this morning. The solution is found in this beautiful gift of forgiveness. But I want you to understand something about forgiveness this morning. In fact, this comes right out of Ken Sandy's book. I just thought these were such powerful words. He gives four promises of forgiveness. And before he gives these four promises in his book, he he says this about uh, forgiveness. He says, where in the Bible does it say that forgiveness is forgetting? How many of you have heard that before? If you're really going to forgive somebody, you've got to be able to forget what they did. Okay, where in the Bible does it say that forgiveness is forgetting? Or that it depends upon our feelings? Well, I just don't feel like forgiving. You'll hear that. I'm not feeling it. I don't feel like reconciling. Ken Sandy says, where, where do we get that it comes uh, as, as forgetting or that it depends on feelings? Here's his definition. Forgiveness is a choice you make. By God's grace, in spite of your feelings. To forgive someone means to release him or her from liability to suffer punishment. Now, where in the world did he get that from? It's right out of the scriptures. You think about the forgiveness of God. Remember the forgiveness of God. And we don't want to think about God's forgiveness as some some kind of strange, uh, amnesia-driven forgiveness. Where if you were to come before the Lord, I've heard this illustration used before. Well, if you were to come before the Lord and bring up some sin you committed last week, that the Lord would say, well, what are you talking about? How many of you have heard that before? You've heard that illustration used. Well, well, what are you talking about? And God would say, well, what are you talking about? I don't remember anything about that. No, it's not that way at all. In fact, I would say that's a weak form of forgiveness. How much greater is the kind of forgiveness that remembering the offense, and by the way, the offense cost his son his life. If God has forgotten all of our sins, then what justification is there in the mind of God for the cross? Take that in for a moment. 
But how much greater is his forgiveness that rather than just erasing his mind and forgetting what we have done, instead God makes the willful choice that he will not hold our sins against us. That he will not treat us as our sins deserve. What sense does it make for us to say we serve a God who will not treat us as our sins deserve if you speak to him about your sin and he goes, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't believe we serve a God who is suffering from some kind of divine amnesia. He knows fully how our sin ruptured the relationship between us and Him. And yet, by His grace and for His glory and for our good, He has willfully chosen that He will take that punishment upon Himself. He has chosen not to punish us, but to show us grace. So I encourage you, church, please, let's put away from us this false idea that we serve some kind of amnesiac God who just forgets about all of our sins. Your sins are cleansed, and God has made these four promises to you and challenges us to make them to one another. First promise, I will not dwell on this incident. That's the first promise of forgiveness. Not, you know, sometimes people come and say, hey, I'm sorry. Sometimes we say, oh, forget about it. There's something more powerful here. I will not, I will choose not to dwell upon this incident, upon this infraction, upon this hurt. Secondly, I will not bring this up and use it against you. A speaker I heard this weekend reminded me of an old pastor's illustration. A husband and wife got into uh, an argument and he was he was talking to a friend about it and he said you know when my wife and I get into an argument she always tends to get historical and his friend said you mean hysterical right and he said no no I mean historical she digs up everything that I've ever done in all the years of our marriage and some of us have that tendency I mean we remember we remember everything, and we, and we don't only really do we remember, but we keep those things stored in our back pocket for a rainy day when we're going to need to bring out that evidence to show that person how evil they are and how righteous we are that we ever forgave them in the first place. Aren't you thankful God doesn't treat us that way? Aren't you thankful that He has willfully chosen not to bring our sins up and use them against us? So that's what it means when it says He has cast our sin into the heart of the sea. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us and promised not to bring it up again. Third promise of forgiveness. This may be the most difficult. I will not talk to others about this incident. We talked about last week about how important it is when, when you're in, in a broken relationship with someone and trying to reconcile that situation to keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible. But we tend to become Facebook fanatics when somebody's rubbed us the wrong way. We're going to tell all of our friends about how that person hurt us so deeply and we're going to gather forces. We're going to bring people around and say, hey, come, listen, listen to what this person did to me. And we're going to gather up an army to go and to slaughter this individual, maybe not physically, but to slander their character. 
do anything that we can to destroy them. But forgiveness promises, I will not talk to others about this incident. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that God has chosen not to display all your sins on a billboard? Just imagine for a moment. What if God in all of his sovereignty decided to put a list of your sins from this past week up on the screen? Every evil thought. Every bit of lust, anger, those secret things that no one else saw. But he doesn't do that, does he? He has wiped the slate clean and has chosen willfully by his grace not to use those against us, nor to share those with anyone else. There is there is a beautiful place the scriptures talk about in confessing our sins to one another. We're not talking about that here. But we are saying we are not going to gather forces against those that, that we're in conflict with. I want to talk to others about this incident. Finally, this is a great, great promise. I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. That's what the cross is all about, church. The cross is God saying, I will not allow your sin to separate you from me. And so I will take the fullness of your sin upon myself. I will take all the punishment upon myself so that we might have unhindered relationship with one another. And that's what it takes. These promises are so crucial. If we're going to forgive, in fact, Jesus says, Matthew chapter 6, we know the Lord's Prayer, this model prayer where Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. It's the way we should pray. We love that part. And then right after it is the one most of us would write out. Give us this day our daily bread. Man, I'm on for that. Bring on the bread, Father. And right after it, without even putting the period there, he says, and forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. And we go, oh, man, really? Now, before we get real deep into this whole deal of, well, if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. I don't even think that's necessarily the hard intention. The hard intention of the model prayer is this. Realize how much you've been forgiven. Realize that his grace toward you super abounds. Realize that you and I are so due his judgment. We are deserving of his wrath. And he has willfully chosen not to hold our sins against us. So how is it then that we can hold other sins against them? So it's Father, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and remind us. Of your forgiveness of us. Finally this morning we'll rush through point three. But I want to to make a point here. It is a matter of the heart's response. It is a matter of our horizontal relationships. And the connection with our vertical relationship with the Lord. But thirdly it is a matter Jesus says of hasty reconciliation. That's the picture that he gives in verses 25 and 26. He says, so come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to the court. Somebody's dragging you into court over an infraction. Come to terms quickly. Why? Lest your accuser hands you over to the judge 
And the judge hands you over to the guard, and you be put in prison. Verse 26 is a scary statement. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What's he saying? He's saying this. Unforgiveness is a terrible prison. Unforgiveness is a terrible prison. Harboring bitterness and hatred and anger in our hearts towards someone else. It's been said, uh, bitterness in the heart is like drinking poison, hoping someone else will die. And we find ourselves in those moments burning a relational bridge over which we ourselves must walk. The gospel says that the cross was a relational bridge between us and God. That there was a gap between us and God because of our sins that we could not cross. And so God built a relational bridge known as the cross for us to be able to enter back into right relationship with Him. But when we harbor unforgiveness and hatred and bitterness in our hearts towards someone else, we burn the very bridge over which we must go. terrible prison. I think many of you in this room would affirm it's not worth the cost to continue in unforgiveness. Let me take a slight turn before we finish this morning. Perhaps some of you in this room are in a situation where God has bent your heart toward forgiveness and reconciliation in a broken relationship. God has bent your heart in that direction, maybe even this very month as we've been walking through these things, and maybe you've even gotten to the place where you've taken that first step toward that brother or sister that that you've had that broken relationship with. Maybe you've taken that first step and you have been utterly rejected. That your heart is, is bent toward restoration, and yet the other person's is not. They will not hear you. They have no desire to reconcile with you. You've you've made the phone call. You've you've sent the text message. You've gone to their home and and sought to have a redeeming conversation. And you've been utterly rejected. Let me just give you two pieces of advice. Number one, don't give up. Don't give up. You, You may find yourself in a kind of situation where... Seeking to go have more conversations with that individual will only make things worse. So talk to your Heavenly Father. Pray for the one who has become your enemy. Pray that God would soften their heart as He softened yours. And pray that God would keep your heart soft so when the day comes that that person is desiring reconciliation, that you won't be the one then hardened against it. The heart is deceptive and full of the deadly poison of evil. Pray that God would keep your heart tender. That you would pray daily for this individual. That God would soften their heart. Pray that God would do what you can't do. Because here's the secret. You can't change anybody's heart. You can't. Some of us think we can. But you can't. You can't change anyone's heart. You couldn't even change your own heart. That's why Jesus came. But I also want to say, there's a word in Romans 12, 
By the way, next week we're going to enter into a series in the latter chapters of Romans, Romans 12 through 16. Such practical advice for the church. In many ways, it will be a great follow-up to what we've been looking at this month. Romans 12, 18, we'll get to this verse in a couple of weeks. It says, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Just take that in for a moment. For some in this room, this needs to become a life verse for you. First of all, it needs to become a life verse for those who don't think they need to live at peace with anybody. I'm just going to do my own thing, make my own way. And if anybody has a problem with it, it's tough luck for you. No, the Bible says live peaceably with all. But for those of us who tend to be in that people pleaser category... By the way, right now in Galatians 1.10, that, that'll start to fix that issue in your life. For those of us that tend to live in that people-pleaser category, where we can't sleep if someone's upset with us, where we think we have to fix everything, where, when you're in that place, there can be an idolatry that develops. That you care more about what that other person thinks about you than what God thinks about. Your thoughts are more consumed with that broken relationship than they are with your Heavenly Father. Remember where this series began. Our first focus is, God, how can you be glorified? God will not be glorified if that broken relationship in your life becomes an idol that consumes your focus. He must be the only one that consumes your focus. And He is the one who says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, do everything you can do. Make the calls, send the letters, pursue that person in love until you realize that the pursuit is just making it worse. But do all that you can do, pray every day as often as it comes to your mind, as much as it depends on you, do everything that you can do and leave the rest to him. So far as it depends on you is a phrase that some in this room need to take to heart. That doesn't mean you resign yourself to just leaving that broken relationship in its place. No, you pray all the harder. Having been rejected in your offer of reconciliation, you pray all the more. And you watch what God does. You see, God loves redeeming these things for this reason. That reconciliation is at the very heart of the gospel. Reconciliation is at the very heart of the gospel. Ken Sandy said, peacemaking is an attitude expressed through action. The heart of this attitude is the joy and thankfulness that comes from fully understanding the gospel of Christ. You see, the more I realize how much I've been forgiven the more I realize how much this sin-soaked heart is deserving of the wrath of God, the more I realize the fullness of His grace and how much He graces me day by day, the easier I will find it to grace others. But it's because I'm underestimating the power of the gospel. It's because I am magnifying the sins of others and minimizing my own sins. 
It's because I am treating others as their sins deserve in my mind, even though I'm not being treated as my sins deserve in the mind of God and in his heart. It's because of those things that many of us are kept from peacemaking. I want to leave you with this thought. This is how we'll close out the series. We're going to take some actions here in just a moment. But I want to leave you with this thought. It's from James chapter 3. What happens if we do this? What happens if we step into peacemaking? James says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peacemakers get to be a part of sowing seeds of righteousness and peace in the lives of others. See, the righteousness of Christ sown into the lives of others through those pathways of reconciliation, restoration, and forgiveness. And when we see these seeds being planted as people begin to see, wait a minute, you're not going to hold that against me? You're offering me forgiveness without strings attached? You're willing to take the blame, the burden upon Yourself, even though the majority of the fault was mine? You see, that's the way in which the gospel leads us. And if you want to see a harvest of righteousness in your family, in your workplace, even in your church, then start to sow some of these seeds. Start to take these horizontal relationships seriously. Start to pursue others with the love and grace of God with which you've been pursued. And watch Him do immeasurably more than all you ask or think. Yeah. So I will remind you, church, these things that we have been talking about this last month, they are not just good suggestions. They are God-given commands. The question that remains is how will we walk in these things? And I know as we finish up this morning that in this room that there are some of you here who are saying, you know what? All that you're saying is hitting home, but I don't even know where to begin. I have a broken relationship. There is a brother or sister in Christ who avoids me if we happen to catch a glance of each other at Walmart. There is a messy, messed up relationship that I don't know exactly what to do. I want you to to say to you this morning, you are not alone. You are not alone. We live in a broken, sin-saturated world that is littered with these. And you're not alone even in the church. They are all over the landscape of our church and of our churches. I want to set before you an opportunity this morning to make a step. A step toward Christ and toward His restoring power in the gospel. I've asked our our deacons and if our elders would join them, maybe some of their wives as well, just to join me here at the front. If, If I ask you guys to pray about that, if that's something that God's leading you to do, I want to make these men and women available to you this morning, church. Deacons, elders, you're watching, you guys can go ahead and come this direction. They're just going to line up here across the front. I want to say this, first of all, there is nothing extra holy about any of us. 
we've just been called out by the Holy Spirit by this church to serve you. And here's how we'd like to serve you this morning. Some of you are dealing with broken relationships and you don't even know where to begin in seeking reconciliation. But perhaps God would place upon your heart this morning the desire to at least take the first step. And here's the first step I want to encourage you. As we share this, this song and invitation, this one invitation is this. Come and take one of these men or women by the hand and just say, Hey, would you pray with me? I'm struggling with something that the pastor's been talking about. You don't have to get into details. We do not want this to be uh, some uh, prayer-covered gossip session. That's not what this is about. You don't have to give any details. But just come and say, I need somebody to pray with me. I don't know what to do from this point forward, but I want God to show me. I'm willing to take the first step today toward reconciling what's been broken. 